0: Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will again deep dive the world of game theory by exploring one of my favorite professional sports leagues, Major League Soccer. Using elements of mass coordination games and the idea of network externalities, we will explore how Major League Soccer tried to change the rules of soccer to compete against the NFL and the NBA for fans. So if you ever wondered why the MLS created their own form of a shootout, or what has kept soccer from becoming as big as other professional sports leagues in America, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of... The Sport Professor Podcast. In past podcasts, we introduced the basic ideas of something called game theory, and we talked both about sequential games and simultaneous games. We tried our best to apply the elements of these games to various sports settings, talking about the scoring output in the NBA and where's the best shot to take on the court. We talked about penalty kicks in soccer and how to strategically use this idea of outguessing your opponent. We talked about holdouts in the NFL, focusing specifically on one player and why his holdout was not successful for him. And then we talked about college athletes trying to decide whether to enter into the draft or not, and how they can go about coordinating that decision with other potential draft prospects. But today what I want to do is I want to focus solely on the management side of sport. And I want to do that by looking at one of the most interesting and fastest growing professional sports leagues in America. and That is Major League Soccer or the MLS. I want to explore the history of the league and I want to look at a number of decisions that were made early on to try to discern why those decisions were made, what impact they had at the time, and then how they affected the growth of the league. And I want to do all of that within the framework of game theory. But before we dive into the MLS, we need to start by setting the theoretical parameters for what we're talking about. And more specifically, we need to set them in terms of game theory and talk about how game theory can actually apply to starting a professional sports league. So let's begin by identifying what type of game we are playing here. If you recall from our previous podcast, in game theory, we have a number of different types of games that we can play. We have a zero-sum game and a non-zero-sum game. We have a finite game and an infinite game. And we have what's called a sequential game and a simultaneous game. So in the situation that we're going to talk about today, we are playing a non-zero-sum, infinite simultaneous game. So what does this actually mean? Let's break it down a little bit for you. To begin, remember, a non-zero-sum game means that we're not playing in a contest or competing against someone else in a winner-take-all situation. It's not like a basketball game where one team wins and one team loses. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Just because we have one team that wins or gains more in the outcome doesn't mean the other team that's playing or the other company that's competing gains nothing. It just means that they didn't get as much. So we can actually have both sides come out of this game or this contest or this situation getting something of value. But they're probably just not going to come out equal. Businesses compete in non-zero-sum games oftentimes. It's not that one business gets all the customers, the other business gets none of them. It's normally that one business gets a majority of the customers while the other business gets a minority. So we're playing a non-zero-sum game. We also said this is an infinite game. That just means that there's not a set number of moves that are made in this game the game lasts forever or at least lasts until one side loses resources and can no longer compete or till one side decides to drop out. Now, Finally, that notion of being simultaneous, that means that both individuals playing in this game or both businesses that are competing in this contest or both businesses that are competing in this marketplace are making decisions at the same time, only having a limited amount of information about what the other side will do. So when we're talking about starting a league or we're talking about professional sports leagues competing against each other, we are talking about a non-zero-sum, infinite, simultaneous game. Now, I want to stop here for a second and explore this last point about this being a simultaneous game a bit more because there are multiple types of simultaneous games. There's all these subsets and we've talked about a couple of them. For example, when we're talking about the penalty kick in soccer, I mentioned that we were playing a simultaneous outguessing game. So the goal of both sides was to be able to outguess what their opponent was going to do, and that was how you would be able to come out victorious. Well, this game that we're going to play today is called a massive or mass coordination game. A mass coordination game is very similar to our previous coordination game that we discussed in our past podcast on the NBA draft. Now, if you recall, or maybe if you didn't listen to that episode, just a quick recap— Athletes in college trying to decide whether or not they want to go into the draft, either for the NFL or the NBA or, in our case, for the MLS, are all playing a coordination game with each other. Meaning, the best way to assure the greatest outcome for everyone involved in the game is to actually work together and coordinate your moves and decisions. So, we talked about the idea that if I want to enter the draft... I should try to get the other 10 top prospects in the draft to decide not to enter the draft because that assures me the best outcome. Likewise, if they're all other 10 are going to enter the draft, I want them to tell me that because the best outcome for me would be to not enter, go back to school, and come out the next year. So that's that idea of a coordination game. Well, in a mass or massive coordination game, we're doing the exact same thing. But instead of just dealing with 10 players in the draft like we talked about, we're dealing with thousands or even millions of people playing one game all at the same time. Now, we typically see mass coordination games take place when consumers are trying to choose between different brands of goods or services to purchase. For example, imagine that you want to get a new cell phone and you've narrowed it down to two choices. You're either going to get an iPhone 10 or you're going to get the Samsung Galaxy Note 9. I want you to put yourself in that situation. I want you to think through this. Imagine that you are trying to decide between those two phones and ask yourselves what factors are going to influence or impact or affect your decision about what phone to choose. I've given this lecture multiple times in person and in giving it, the first thing that most of the audience members will tell me is they'll say the cost or the price of the phone. They'll look at the the cost, they'll look at the value that they're getting. Well, both of these two phones that I put up here are right around $1,000. So the cost is negligible. If it's not the cost that is going to affect your decision, what's going to be maybe the second thing? And this is where most people will say something to the fact of, well, I would get the iPhone because all my friends and all my family have an iPhone, and it's just easier if we all have the same phone. And that makes sense. Or they might say the exact same thing about the Galaxy Note. Or they might say, well, I really like the Galaxy Note, but I don't know anyone that has it, so I just decided to get the iPhone because that's what everyone has. Well, without even realizing it. These individuals, and if you had this same thought process, you did the exact same thing, you just played a mass coordination game in your head, and you made a decision based on the central tenets of game theory. Let me explain this a little bit more and kind of draw this out about how this actually fits into this idea of game theory. So, If you remember, in game theory, we always talk about three things. We talk about the players, we talk about the decisions or moves the players can make, and then we talk about the potential outcomes that each of those moves may bring. Well, in the game that we just described with this picking of cell phones, the players are you and then everyone else you know that has a cell phone. That could be your family, that could be your friends, that could be colleagues, it could be anyone. The decisions that you have are pretty simple. I said you could get an iPhone or you could get a Samsung. The payoff or the outcomes that you can obtain by getting one of the two cell phones gets a little bit trickier to describe. But let's think of it this way. You could go through and you could actually make a game matrix like we talked about in last week's podcast, but we don't have to do that because we can calculate the payoffs by really answering two simple questions. First question is, what happens if everyone chooses the same phone? Doesn't matter which of the phones it is, whether it's the iPhone or the Samsung, all I want to know is what happens if everyone makes the decision to get the exact same phone? Well, both phones have features that are very specific to that phone and can only be used between two people with the same phone. For example, the iPhone has FaceTime, and FaceTime can only be used between two people with iPhones. So if I get an iPhone and you get an iPhone, then we can FaceTime each other. But what happens if I have an iPhone and you have a Samsung? Now the FaceTime app that I have is completely useless. It means nothing. It does nothing. It can't work. So the only way that FaceTime has any value to me is if we both have iPhones. And there are a ton of examples of this that we could look at on both phones that have apps that are specific to those phones. What that means is that the phone that I pick in this game really only has a maximum value. Or should I say, the only way that I can get the highest payoff from my choice of phone is if you and my family and my friends and my colleagues and everyone else all chooses the exact same phone that I do. Otherwise, I'm not really able to utilize all the features that my phone has. I'm not able to maximize the payoff. I'm not able to get my true money's worth. Now, this doesn't mean that if we choose different phones that my phone and your phone don't have any value. They still have a thousand other things that they can do. I can still text people. I can still call people. I just can't truly maximize that value unless we all choose the same thing. So this example of just picking a phone is a very simple way to think about mass coordination games. It shows us some of these fundamental elements. This idea that I can only really get true value out of my choice if, other people choose it as well. And we call this idea network externalities. Miller, in his book Game Theory at Work, defined network externalities as when the value of the product is dependent on the number of people using that product. In other words, the more people who have the product, the more valuable the product becomes. Just think about it. What if you were the only person in the world who had a phone and no one else had one? how valuable is the phone at that point? Well, it's completely worthless because a phone is a two-way street. You have to have someone else to call. So if no one else has a phone, you have no one to call, your phone is worth nothing. Now imagine that you and five other people in the world have a phone. The value of your phone now is higher because at least you can get in contact with those five people. And now let's take that all the way to the end and say you and everyone else in the world has a phone. Now the value of your phone is extremely high because you can contact anyone in the entire world. The more people that have a phone, the more valuable that phone becomes, and that is exactly what happens in these mass coordination games. And phones are not the only example of this. It's kind of the go-to example that a lot of scholars and authors write about in their books. But we could give a modern day view of this, and that would be social media. Think about Facebook or think about Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Let's just focus on Snapchat because I remember when Snapchat first came out. I remember seeing the creators of it talk about it on TV. And I thought, wow, this is a really cool idea. It's better than Facebook, better than Instagram. I'm going to go on and I'm going to download it. And I did that and I created an account and I had it. And I thought, wait a minute, I have no one to send pictures to. I have no one to use this app with. Because no one that I knew had ever heard of Snapchat. And actually, it just sat on my phone for about two years before I finally met someone that asked me if I had Snapchat. And it was the first time I could actually use, and now fast forward... Eight years later, and millions of people have Snapchat. There's people all over the world that you can have conversations and communicate with through Snapchat, and it's gained more and more and more value. And if you actually listen to financial reports, or if you listen to the creators and CEO of Snapchat talk, they talk about how many users they have as a way to demonstrate the value. Because the more people that use it, the more valuable it becomes, just like that phone example that is so often talked about in these mass coordination games. So the question you might be asking yourself at this point is, okay, that makes sense. But what does all this have to do with businesses? And what does all this have to do with professional sports leagues? Well, In the business world, it's critical that we're able to identify when there are mass coordination games taking place and when they're occurring so that we can both take advantage of them and so we can properly understand how to sell our goods and or services if we find ourselves in such a game. Bill Gates has a famous quote on this, and he discussed this idea of how Microsoft operates. And he said, we look for opportunities with network externalities where there are advantages to the vast majority of consumers to share a common standard. So how does this exactly work? How can we take advantage of this in businesses? Well, the first step is the hardest step. The first thing that we have to do is we have to get a large number of people to buy our product. And that becomes complicated because with Snapchat, for example, it took a long time for them to get past what we call the early adapters and become mainstream. But if I'm able to do this, if I'm able to get a large number of people to buy my product or a large number of people to use my product, as more and more people use it, the product becomes more and more popular. The more popular the product becomes, the more people want to use it. And the more new people we can get to buy our product because they don't want to be left out. Not that they're worried necessarily about not having the product, but they don't want to be left out of the benefits that that product or service is giving to everyone. So we have to first get our our product sold to a large number of people. As more and more people start to buy the product, it becomes more popular. The more popular the product becomes, the more other people are going to want to buy the product. The more those other people buy the product, the more popular it becomes. And so we start to get into this cycle where product stays popular because it is popular. Now, I've had students tell me that that just sounds like something uh, an academic would say to sound really smart, but it makes sense because when we're talking about network externalities we're talking about a product needing to be used by a lot of people we're talking about the more people that use it the more beneficial the product becomes and so the more people use it the more popular it becomes we end up in this cycle we end up in this feedback loop where popularity begets popularity we mentioned this as an example with cell phones we mentioned this as an example with social media apps But these examples proliferate the business world, and they proliferate the world of sports. Let me just give you a couple to help drive home this point. The first one I always like to talk about are streaming services like Netflix or Apple TV or Amazon Prime. And oftentimes people say, well, wait, what does it have to do with sport? But I want you to hold that thought because let's just look at the streaming service by itself first. When these type of services first came out, they weren't that popular, and there are really only a few early adapters. But as more and more people started to use them and consume the content and the shows and the movies that they were putting out, it became much more of a priority for more people to gain access to the shows and the content. Why? Because people didn't want to be left out. People were seeing that their conversations happening in the workplace that they couldn't be a part of because they didn't have the streaming service. They weren't able to engage in that water cooler talk around what was going on. And as a result, people started to want to get access to those streaming services. And as more and more people gained access to those services, the more and more popular those services became. And the more popular they became, the more people wanted to gain access to them. So think about some of the early shows that Netflix had. Shows like Orange is the New Black and House of Cars. And there was documentaries like Making a Murderer. And now there's the Fire documentary. Shows and documentaries that generate a massive amount of buzz. So much buzz that people want to make sure they have the streaming service so that way they can engage in the conversation with their friends or with their parents or with their colleagues. So in that way, we saw Netflix, we see Apple TV, we see Amazon having these streaming services that have shown this massive amount of network externalities. It has become popular because everyone uses it and everyone uses it because it is popular. So what does that have to do with sport? Well, most people that deal in the sport management field would tell you that a lot of these services are trying or considering getting into live broadcast rights. Amazon's already in live broadcast rights with their Thursday night football package that they have. There was talk that Apple TV and Amazon was going to put a bid in on the NBA the last time the NBA television contract came up. And the reason that these services want to get into these live rights is because they know that sport already has this water cooler talk and that they know that if they were to get these live rights, they would be able to generate buzz around those sports, which would lead to their sites becoming more popular, which would lead to more people buying access to their sites, which would make them more popular. And then that would make them even more money. So we have these streaming services that have nothing to do or very little to do with sport right now, that are slowly thinking about stepping into sport and live broadcast rights to take advantage of the mass coronation game that's already being played. Within the same realm, think about other mass coronation games and sports around TV, things like HD TV or 4K TVs. 20 years ago, having a flat screen TV was a novel idea. But then all of a sudden it became more and more popular. And one of the reasons popularity increased and then one of the reasons that we had HD TV and then 4K TV was the clarity that the TV offered, specifically clarity within sport. Now I can watch a game on my TV and it is more brilliant in color than maybe even going to the game. So the HD TV has become more and more of a popular way to consume sport and the 4K TV is taking it to the next level that it makes more and more people want to do it and again we're into this cycle and into this pattern of it's popular because a lot of people do it and because a lot of people do it it becomes popular because it's popular more people want to do it but maybe even the most basic and simple example is just the popularity of the nfl the nba and even of major league baseball we just had the super bowl last week And the Super Bowl is the most watched American sporting event in the United States. And it's really not even close. The biggest competitors from a world standpoint would be the Champions League. And then when we have the Olympics or we have the World Cup, those are big competitors as well. But in America, the Super Bowl is the most viewed sporting event that we put on. Well, why is it so popular? It's so popular because it pulls in the fringe fan the latest numbers I saw, around a hundred million people watch the Super Bowl every year. There's not a hundred million football fans out there. There's definitely not a hundred million new england patriot fans or los angeles ram fans but people watch it because they don't want to miss out on the event and the spectacle they don't want to go to work the next day not having seen the halftime show or not having seen the game or not having seen the commercials the nfl has really taken advantage of this mass coordination game and capitalized on it to the point where if you don't watch the game you're missing out on something so culturally important that you're not going to be able to engage in those conversations with your friends, your colleagues, your parents, your family the next day. And that's how the popularity of these leagues work. The NBA has done a very good job of that as well, generating a lot of buzz around it, around its star athletes, where if you don't know who LeBron James or Steph Curry is, you're actually missing out on part of the conversation. And we can actually apply this to baseball as well, where baseball isn't the same level of popularity, but we can see that the popularity in baseball is actually slowly decreasing. We have a whole podcast talking about what we're fans on. That's earlier in our podcast feed that I would recommend you go back and listen to. But in that feed we talk about baseball numbers slowly declining. Now, baseball is seen as a regional sport, meaning that baseball is most popular in certain regions of the country, not across the entire country. Football is a more global sport. It's popular across the entire United States. Well, the regionality of baseball actually leads to slowly decreasing numbers as far as attendance and as far as popularity because it's slowly losing popularity. The less popular it becomes, the less people want to watch it. The less people that watch it means it leads to being less and less popular. So you're never going to see a sport like baseball completely fall off. You're going to see a gradual decline because we have the actual reverse happening of the mass coordination game. People are choosing not to watch it because other people are choosing not to watch it. But popularity of professional sporting leagues ties really closely into what we're talking about here with these mass coordination games. So all of that leads us back to Major League Soccer and a central question. This conversation about the popularity of the NFL and the NBA from a global standpoint and the idea of each of those being great examples of mass coordination games that are being played. So how do I compete against that if I'm the MLS or how do I compete against that if I want to start a new professional sports league? Well, there's certain things that you can do, and there's certain things that scholars and people that study game theory suggest. And one of those is selling to a niche market. In other words, we try to not compete directly with those teams or with those leagues or with those organizations that already have that mass popularity because people are fans of that league because it's so popular. Well, we're not going to make it less popular. We're not going to be able to do that. So we can try to sell to a niche marketplace. We can try to sell to a different segment where we're not competing directly against that group that's already engaged in succeeding in that mass coordination game. We could also wait until the league or the firm has used up all of its resources and can no longer play in this infinite game that we're talking about but with professional sport leagues with the nfl the nba and even with major league baseball which we said is that slowly decline in popularity they're not going nowhere anytime soon so that doesn't necessarily seem like it could work what we could also do is we could try to develop a compatible product to fill the same needs that that product or service that the nfl or nba is filling And that's what Major League Soccer really tried to do. They tried to develop a compatible product that could compete directly with these other teams and other organizations and other leagues that were out there. But doing that created some challenges for them. Before we get to what those challenges are, though, let's stop here and let's just provide a little bit of background about Major League Soccer so we can really frame the conversation of what they did to try to compete with the NFL and the NBA. So Major League Soccer, or the MLS, began to take shape really in 1988, and this was when the United States submitted a bid to host the 1994 World Cup. And as part of that bid, the United States Soccer Association, Promised that they would develop a top-flight soccer league if they were awarded the tournament. So fast forward, and they actually get the bid, and they hold the 1994 World Cup here in the United States. In 1995, Major League Soccer was officially formed, and they began with 10 teams, and they awarded them to different cities across the country, and they decided that they were going to begin play in 1996. Now, the basic rules... That they chose to follow for gameplay on the actual pitch were the same as the international governing bodies which is FIFA however they decided to institute what I refer to as progressive ideas because they wanted to improve the game and improve the experience knowing what they were competing with was professional football professional basketball and professional baseball so for example They still played the 90-minute match, which was comprised of two 45-minute halves. This was true for all FIFA-sanctioned events. But instead of having the game clock count up like it does in every other professional soccer league in the world, they had the game clock count down from 45 to 0. Additionally, the game clock itself was kept in the scores box. So that way the exact time was shown on the scoreboard, And everyone in the stadium knew exactly how much time was left. Now, again, this is unlike all other top flight soccer leagues who have the referee on the field keep time. This annoys a lot of people who aren't soccer fans because you end up having stoppage time. The clock might say zero, or in the top flight leagues, the clock might say 45, but you might have an extra minute or two of stoppage time. And that's all done by the center ref's discretion. Well, the MLS didn't want to deal with that. They wanted all the fans to know exactly how much time was left, just like, you know, in the NBA or just like, you know, in the NFL. So they decided to institute slightly different rules. Another change that the MLS instituted was to try to get rid of tie ball games. They were concerned that a tie game wasn't going to be exciting enough for their fans. Unlike every other top-flight international league who allow their league games to end in ties, They decided to institute a shootout at the end of tied ball games. The idea of a shootout doesn't maybe seem too foreign. We talked about shootouts and penalty kicks last game. Other leagues will use shootouts if in a tournament or in a championship game there's a tie, they'll let the game go into a shootout. But the MLS didn't want to just do any shootout. They wanted to make up a different form of a shootout, and they called it an MLS shootout. And this shootout involved the player and the goalie going one-on-one. The player started with the ball 35 yards from the goal, and they had five seconds to have a breakaway to try to score. And if they scored the ball at the end of those five seconds, they got a point. If they missed or if the goalie saved it, they didn't get a point. Each team was allowed to have a set number of players attempt it. At the end, we always had a winner. Again, the idea behind this was to get rid of the tie, but also to generate some excitement within the fan base. And while we can debate the success or failures of these changes, The question that I'm more interested in asking is why did the MLS do this? Why did they take one of the most popular sports in the world and completely change some of the basic elements of the game? Well, I think there's a number of things we can point to that explain this. But first I think we need to really understand how soccer was viewed in the United States at the time. Remember. In 1988 is when the MLS really begins to take shape because that's when the United States Soccer Association pledged that they would create a top flight league. Up until 1988, we actually had had a number of soccer leagues take shape in America and a number that had failed. We'd had leagues that were very popular, that actually were filling professional football stadiums and drawing 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people a game. But each of those leagues actually had failed. At the time of the World Cup, we had had some smaller leagues that were much more regional and local that were popping up across the country, but they were never really able to gain a foothold. And I think what happened at the time is the United States Soccer Association and those people that were in charge of really forming the MLS started to question why we had had those leagues fail and why those current leagues just weren't gaining the popularity of some of these other professional sport leagues that we had. And the conclusion that they came up with was the rules of the game were holding it back. Things like the clock and people not knowing exactly how much time was left would hold people back from being fans. Or things like a game ending in a tie, holding people back from becoming fans. But in saying and ascribing that those were the factors that were inhibiting our fandom or inhibiting the popularity of the sport and keeping it from growing to the size of professional football or professional basketball, they were overlooking a very simple factor. And that was that the top players in the world were not playing Professional soccer in the United States. If you look at any of the other professional leagues in the United States that are successful, the National Football League, the National Basketball League, Major League Baseball, all of those are populated with the best players in the world. Not just the best American talent, but the best players in the world. No professional soccer league was able to sustain having the best players in the world in it for a long period of time. There was a brief stint where we did have some well-known players come over and play professional soccer in the United States, people like Pele most famously, but they weren't able to sustain that because they paid them so much that the league went bankrupt. And so they overlooked the fact that we weren't, get, we weren't getting the top players in the world. We weren't even getting the top American players to play in our country. And that was the major reason that, that professional soccer was failing. And so they institute these rule changes, like having the clock differences, like inserting this special shootout to break ties. And what happened was you actually upset the hardcore soccer fans. And I was one of them because at the time in 1996, I was 12 years old. I had been playing. Soccer. I knew the rules. I loved the game. And they instituted this. And I was like, wait a minute, why are we playing by different rules than everyone else in the world? Because we had just established a league and all these other professional leagues that were the top flight, like the EPL, like La Liga, they played by completely completely different rules than we did. And it was confusing to me. And it was actually upsetting. And it made us, to me, feel like a second-class league. So by trying to make the MLS More like our other professional sports, you actually ended up upsetting a lot of the hardcore soccer fans and losing them from coming on board. At the same time, the rule chains were put in place to try to attract fans from other sport leagues, but the reason that they weren't watching soccer in the first place had nothing to do with the rules. It had to do a lot with the lack of star players. So we institute these rule changes to try to break into this marketplace and try to attract some of the fans that were fans of other sports. But the problem was that the people that were putting this league together didn't realize or didn't take into consideration the mass coordination game that they were playing. The NFL and the NBA are popular because they're popular. That's what a mass coordination game says. People watch the Super Bowl because everyone else is watching the Super Bowl. People weren't watching Major League Soccer because of the rules. People weren't watching Major League Soccer because no one else wanted to watch it. Well, in professional sports, what's the quickest way to get someone to pay attention to your league or to your team? It is to have massive stars be a part of that team. And so if we look at the history of the MLS and how it starts to gain popularity, we start to gain a lot of popularity when we break in, not into the sports news, but into the everyday lexicon, when we start to be on the front page. And you can actually mark that pretty well with the inclusion of some very high-level, high-notoriety foreign players like David Beckham. When David Beckham came over to the league, all of a sudden, it wasn't just, hey, have you seen that soccer game? It's, hey, have you seen David Beckham? Or, extending out past him, hey, have you seen Posh Spice, the person that he's married to and his wife? He took soccer in in the MLS to something that everyone wanted to watch because everyone else was watching it. It became more than just a sports story. It became a news story and a news event. And that's really the key here in how we can use this knowledge of mass coordination games to actually break in and challenge some of these other successful leagues. We have to do something to make ourselves popular. How do we make ourselves popular? It's not by changing the rules and trying to be more like everyone else. It's about having something that makes us stand out. In America, one of the easiest ways to do that, especially in the 21st century, is to have massive star appeal, to have recognizable names that everyone knows. In the league has started to do that and started to be more successful with that through having these really big name players and along those same lines we can actually answer another question which is confounded a lot of people in the media because every four years the world cup comes on and the world cup has a massive level of popularity in the united states and it doesn't matter where whether we're talking about the men's world cup or the women's world cup whenever those tournaments are on We have a lot of people talking about them. And all of a sudden, we have news stories come out saying, oh, is this the time for soccer in America? Is soccer finally going to catch on and become one of the top sports in the United States? And those news stories generate buzz. And all of a sudden, people get excited. And the World Cup goes away. And we have the MLS. And it does okay. But it's not drawing nearly what our other professional sport leagues are. And people are like, oh, I guess you were wrong. But you're missing the point again, if that's what you think. Because the World Cup is so popular in the United States because it is so popular. That's what mass games teach us. The World Cup is so popular because it's not just a local conversation or a conversation between soccer nuts or hardcore soccer fans. It is a national conversation. It goes outside of just being for people who like to go and watch the game. And it now becomes a, a spectacle that everyone has to see. Just look at the last World Cup the United States was in. The last World Cup in 2018, the the United States failed to qualify for. But the one before that, that was held in Brazil, the United States was in. And there were massive viewing parties. If you were to watch any of the games on TV, they would cut to Kansas City and they would show thousands of people gathered in an outdoor square watching the game on a jumbotron. And why were those people there? A lot of them were probably hardcore soccer fans, but a lot of them were there for the experience. They didn't want to miss out. They wanted to be able to be a part of the conversation. The more people that were watching and going, all of a sudden there starts to be a buzz that's being generated. And I'm watching maybe the local news or the nightly news or the national news, and they're showing clips not just of the games, but of people watching the games. And I think to myself, gosh... I want to be a part of that so that way I can engage in this conversation as well. And so more people become a part of it. It becomes more popular. The more popular it becomes, the more people want to watch. And that's what we have happen with the World Cup. We don't see that type of buzz being generated with Major League Soccer. I would guess most of you probably don't even realize, unless you're hardcore soccer fans, who won the MLS Cup this past year. And it was actually a great game because it was Atlanta, and they sold out the exact same stadium that they just sold out for the Super Bowl. It hosted the same number of people. You had 80,000 people watching soccer live, and yet it didn't break through. Why? Because it didn't break over into the common media narrative. The Super Bowl breaks over. Everyone talks about the next day or the next week. They talk about the commercials. They talk about Adam Levine and the halftime show. The MLS hasn't had that level of success, and they won't until they're able to push through into that news cycle. So rule changes or changes in how the game is played isn't going to have an effect. What's going to have an effect and what's truly going to lead to the league being more successful and breaking in and becoming one of these top four professional sports league is breaking over and gaining that mass popularity through the regular mainstream media. That's what the World Cup does. The World Cup generates that. And so all of a sudden, for a month, Americans care about soccer. We could apply this same type of logic to the Olympics. Most of you probably don't care at all about the 110-meter hurdles or know nothing about swimming. But once every four years, all of a sudden, we care. And why do we care? In part because we're cheering for our country. That's a part of it. But why do we like to cheer for our country? Because everyone here is doing it. We want to be a part of that. Why do we care? Because once every four years, the storyline becomes the Olympics. And we want to be able to be a part of that. We want to be able to share in that experience with other people. We as human beings have a desire to engage in social interactions. Sport is great because it provides us those social interactions. But in order for me to engage, it, I have to consume it. And the more people that consume it, the more likely I am to consume it as well. So now hopefully we have a little bit better understanding of what happened with Major League Soccer. It started off as this great idea. They had rule changes in place for the right reasons to hopefully try to gain popularity. But true popularity is never going to be had until it becomes something that transcends into the mainstreams. Because what we can learn through the ideas of a mass coordination game is popularity begets popularity. So what Major League Soccer should be doing, in my opinion, to try to take advantage of these network externalities, of the ideas that are present within game theory and the notion of mass coordination games, is they should be working to get their product talked about more in everyday conversation. And the starting point with that is on their national news. How do we break in? Bringing star players in, like David Beckham. We're having David Beckham own a team now, which he does, in Miami. That's a good starting point point. and maybe getting some more other high profile players. We've done that with getting more of our top flight Americans to play, but we're still falling short. The best American soccer players right now today are not playing in the MLS. They're playing broad in the other top leagues. So we need to focus on getting more of that talent here, more name recognition here, people that transcend the sport, because those people are what's going to draw more and more of the casual viewer because they want to be able to engage in that conversation with their colleagues, with their friends, with their family. But not until we do that, not till we have the same type of name recognitions as our players in the NBA or our players in the NFL, are we ever really going to break through and make soccer as popular as those other sports leagues. If you've liked this conversation about the MLS and the strategies that they took early on and some suggestions about what they should do now in terms of game theory, I would suggest going and listening to our other podcasts we've done on game theory. We've applied different aspects of game theory within four different podcasts on our feed on iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast so that way you don't miss out on any future those. And if you have any questions or thoughts about the MLS and how game theory applies to them, please feel free to follow us and connect with us on Instagram at the sport professor. Shoot us a message with questions and we will be more than happy to engage with you and answer them. Until next time though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the sport professor podcast.